We'll grab a Bible with me and turn to John chapter 17. Before we dig into the Word of God this morning, I just want to um, make another mention of the debt campaign. I want to personally thank uh, my friend Keith Cox for uh, stepping up and, and leading us through this process. It was a little over a year ago, if I'm honest, it was... Um, a couple years ago, and Keith first started to say, why can't we pay down this debt? And then really, about officially this time last year, we we began to ponder this as a team. And as Keith led us through this process and said, why couldn't we have this debt paid off by Thanksgiving? Uh, well, this congregation uh, well exceeded that goal. So I not only want to thank Keith, but also the members of the Finance uh, Ministry Action Team. Uh, thanks to you, the congregation, for your sacrificial and your faithful and joyful giving. It greatly honors the Lord. And we can give thanks to our our great God for once again uh, reminding us, just, just giving us a little glimmer of his faithfulness. We have so much to be thankful for together at Christ Fellowship. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Horns of a Dilemma. The Horns of a Dilemma refers to a situation where you are faced with making a choice between two options, yet neither of those options produce results which are favorable in your mind. This is a situation where you might look at the a specific setting and say awkward. I want to give some examples of what it means to be on the horns of a dilemma. I'll test you this morning. I would ask you this question. If you had a chance of dying in a plane crash or drowning, which would you choose? That's, a, that's an example of what it means to be on the horns of a dilemma. Some of you know that Chris Veldman, and by the way, he's been so frightened this morning because I told him he would be a part of the message and it would involve vegetables. And most of you know that I love to do object lessons and, and have participation. And, and so Chris thinks that right under here there's something that he, he's going to have to consume, a big old thing of broccoli. And boy... <laughs> The the carnal side of me, the, the carnal side of me wants to have him do that. It would be so fun. But we'll uh, we'll have mercy on him today. Well, what does it mean for Chris to be on the horns of a dilemma? If Laura this afternoon said, "Chris, we're having um, one of your favorites for lunch," you can either choose between broccoli or cauliflower. That is the classic definition of what it means to be on the horns of a dilemma. In the month of November. As American citizens, we will be faced with a very, very important choice at the ballot box. Do I need to say anything else? This is a situation where we will literally um, be on the horns of a dilemma. As many people in this country are uncomfortable with uh, both of the major candidates. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are faced with a decision, or a situation rather, that illustrates also what it means to be on the horns of a dilemma. And I want to have you wrestle with this question for the remainder of our time this morning. The question is this, what should be our mindset as followers of Christ in this wicked generation? What should be our mindset as followers of Christ in this wicked generation? And there are a, a couple different ways to go. I want to have you think about this. There's a built-in tension to this question. 
The tension of the question can be stated as follows. The, the instinct of some Christians, when they answer the question, what should be our mindset as followers of Christ in this wicked generation, the first direction we go is to flee from the world. The first direction is what you might refer to as asceticism or being a monk, or being a hermit. And I think that many of you would say, this is my natural inclination. My response to the question, how should a Christ follower live in a wicked and a, an ungodly culture, is we flee to one extreme. We become ascetics. We become monks. We become hermits. And this is how the monastics in church history, responded to this question. As you know, they fled from the world. They fled from the world. One church historian says to enter a monastery was to separate from the world, to abandon the ordinary relationships of social life, to shun marriage and all that the Christian home signifies. The first response of fleeing from the world, you see, aims for isolation. The logic would run something like this. If I run far enough from the deadly effects of the world, my my spiritual life will remain unpolluted. And as I was considering this first option, the option to flee from the world, to become an ascetic, the thought just just ran through my heart like a lightning bolt. Is What the ascetic fails to realize is that as he or she flees from the world to seek isolation, to be protected from the hideous effects of the world, is they take their evil heart with them. You see, it's an erroneous notion to think that we can flee from the evil and ungodly effects of the world and preserve an unpolluted spiritual life. There's a second response, and it's the polar opposite. The second response is what you might refer to as absorption. The second response, you see, is to absorb just about anything and everything that the world has to offer. In other words, this response is the response of worldliness. It's a response of worldliness. John MacArthur has stated, Worldliness is the sin of allowing one's appetites, ambitions, or conduct to be fashioned according to earthly values. You might say that the ascetic is the classic example of the legalist. I do all the right things. I say all the right things. I'm a spiritual person. You might say that the person engaged in absorption is the person who is is enamored with license. It's all about Christian freedom. I do whatever I please. I immerse myself in the world. What should be our mindset as followers of Christ in this evil world? We've seen that people tend to gravitate toward an unhealthy asceticism on one hand that flees from the world or an unhealthy absorption that follows the world. Here's the bottom line. Neither response is biblical. Neither response honors God. This is precisely why this question leaves us on the horns of a dilemma. Now, Jesus helps us to resolve this tension to this thorny question as he continues in John chapter 17 to commune with the Father. I think 
And I pray that you will find his answer highly practical and very very encouraging because I think if we were all to gather together and say, where do I struggle? Do I struggle with the life of a quote unquote ascetic or do I struggle with absorption? I think the church is likely split right down the middle in the generation that I grew up in, in the mid seventies and the early eighties as a young person. Some of you remember what that was like. Basically what people did is they were on the ascetic side the hermit side is we're going to flee from the world but something began to happen and this is just my own personal observation it's not based on research or statistics or anything else probably in the early 90s or mid 90s something began to to change the pendulum began to shift where christian liberty began to become more prominent and you begin to see people christ followers swing into the other side of the equation where they are absorbed in the things of the world and once again neither option is a biblical option look with me at john chapter 17 and would you stand for the reading of god's word as we read john chapter 17 beginning in verse 14 this is the word of the lord Jesus continues in his high priestly prayer in verse 14. He says to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Father, I I ask that you would uh, be merciful, that you would be gracious with us today, that you would give us understanding and help us to answer this uh, very important question. How should Christ's followers live in this world? What should be our mindset in this evil and wicked generation? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have really spelled out a very clear answer for us. And as (laughs) as we explore that answer pray that you'd open the, the window of our eyes and help our, our hearts to be soft to receive your truth. For anyone who struggles with uh, either of the, the polar answers, asceticism or absorption, I pray that you'd bring us to the place where we would live in a way that would honor uh, God, that would be faithful to his word and make an impact in our community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Once again, what should be our mindset as followers of Jesus in this wicked generation? There's really a twofold answer I want to present this morning from Jesus' prayer. The first part of the answer is this. We must remember how the world views us. We must remember how the world views us. Jesus begins in verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just to review the, the word world, which comes from the Greek word cosmos, as we've seen in several studies throughout the Gospel of John, simply represents the godless system that we are a part of. This is a system that is opposed to the ways of God, the character of God, and the word of God. And if you haven't been paying attention... You need to realize that the cosmos, that is the the worldly system, opposes God with a vengeance. You name the agenda. The world opposes God and the word of God at every juncture. The Bible says it like this. The world is crooked 
and twisted, Philippians 2.15. Paul says in Colossians 2 that the world, the, the system of the ungodly world is hollow and deceptive. I've compiled several things that the, the spirit of the age or the, the cosmos, the world, opposes. The spirit of the cosmos, you see, opposes traditional marriage. The spirit of the cosmos opposes biblical sexuality, which is defined as a monogamous, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. If I would have stated these two things that the world opposes 20 years ago, there would have been blank stares on many of your faces because it it wouldn't have registered. But over the last two or three years, we have seen this vicious attack on the institution of marriage. We've seen the vicious promotion of the agenda of homosexuality and transgender, transgender issues. So the spirit of the world also opposes the the biblical mandate to discipline children. The spirit of the world opposes the rights of the unborn. The spirit of the world opposes the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And there's an objection that I sense some of you may have. You say, now wait, Pastor, I have a friend who's not a believer, and he or she values traditional marriage. I have a friend who's not a believer, and he or she opposes homosexuality. We're not talking about individual people. We're talking about the spirit of the cosmos, what the Germans refer to as the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age, you see, opposes these things. But they do more than stand in opposition to biblical truth and biblical reality and the word of God. They also have an agenda. The cosmos affirms, you see, as I've already mentioned, homosexuality. The spirit of the age affirms abortion on demand. The cosmos, the spirit of the age, affirms situational ethics, popularized by Joseph Fletcher, who says, this side of the congregation might do A, this side of the congregation might do B, no one's wrong. It's situational. It depends on the situation. The spirit of the age additionally affirms religious pluralism. Which is to say, the Buddhist is just as right as the Hindu, is just as right as the Mormon, is just as right as Jehovah's Witness, is just as right as the Christian. All roads lead to God. You see, this is the spirit of the age that the cosmos affirms. And at this point, you may be tempted to issue a strong objection. And I have heard this in many, many conversations that I have been a part of. It goes something like this. I'll make it very simple. Loosen up, dude. Have you ever heard that? You need to, you need to loosen up and you need to go with the flow. Get real. Why do you take everything so seriously? I think the biblical answer is, hey man, it's time to tighten up. It's time to draw the line in the sand. It's time to stand up for the truth of the word of God. The response from God's word is this. Remember how the world views us. There's a few things that emerge here in verse 14. I want you to see that the world hates the word of God. The world hates the word of God. The world hates authority. Have you figured that one out? They just hate authority. Don't tell me what to do. Many of us can relate to that, right? When you are driving down the road and you see 
that wonderful image in your rearview mirror, those flashing lights, right? And you pull over to the side of the road and the officer steps up. And no matter what he says, you want to say, but I don't like it when you tell me that. So I was going six miles over the speed limit. So I didn't put my signal on. So I didn't change the tabs on my license plate. I don't like being told what to do. This is the spirit of the world. The world hates authority. The world hates being told what to do. The world refuses to acknowledge God. The world refuses to acknowledge that every good gift comes from God. The world refuses to believe God. The world refuses to obey God. You say, whoa, whoa, hold on. I can't write that fast. I just want you to see this, this composite. I want you to see this, this horrifying this horrifyingly ugly portrait of the cosmos. Instead of hearing the word of God, the world hisses at the word of God. Instead of learning the word of God, the world lambasts the word of God. Instead of savoring the word of God, the, the worldly system scoffs at his word. And instead of marveling at the word of God, the world mocks the word of God. And as difficult as it is, this should come as no surprise to any of us because Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. May I interject a personal thought? The time has come. This is not in the future. This is now. For the time is coming when people not, will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How can I say such a thing? How can I say that we are living in this day and age because we have some of the largest churches in America who fail to preach the gospel? And people will come. And you see very few Bibles. And the people that have Bibles don't open their Bibles. And the reason is because they don't hear anything from the pulpit from the Bible. And so is it any wonder that our culture, that our society, that our nation goes in a given direction when all we do is accumulate around us teachers that itch our ears and tell us exactly what we want to hear. We see that the world hates the word of God. We also see that the world hates the people of God. And before I even begin to unpack this, once again, recognize this. You say, Pastor, Pastor, you don't understand. My best friend is an unbeliever. He doesn't hate me. She doesn't hate me. We can all probably relate to that. We're talking now to the zeitgeist, to the spirit of the age. This is the, the attitude that scripture refers to about this worldly system, that the world hates the people of God. Once again, verse 14, Jesus says to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. The world has hated them. The word hate comes from the Greek word that can be translated as detest. The world detests the people of God. Now, I don't know. I've been told from time to time I'm a little sensitive. How many of you have said that to me? You're a little sensitive, Pastor. So I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I do take things a little bit personally. It's no fun to be hated by someone else. Is anyone else sensitive like me? 
You don't like, good, two, three of you, right? You don't like it when people detest you. You don't like it when people hate you. But the Bible tells us this, get used to it. Learn to expect it. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In 1 John 3.13, John the Apostle says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. And there's a common thread we find in the world's hatred for believers. Look at it carefully with me as we examine some of these scriptures on the screen. In Matthew 10.22, Jesus says, You will be hated by all. And I want you to see if you can examine the common thread. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations. Why? For my name's sake. Luke six twenty two. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Do you see the common thread? These verses tell us precisely why the world, the ungodly system, why they hate followers of Jesus. They hate followers of Jesus because we have an allegiance for Jesus. The ungodly world system hates followers of Christ because of our supreme devotion to Jesus and his lordship. One writer says the response to being reviled and rejected by men should not be bitterness, not losing heart, not being discouraged. That's for me. But according to Jesus, to rejoice and be glad. To rejoice and be glad. But John 17, 14 gives us another reason the world hates us. The world hates followers of Jesus Christ, not only because of our supreme allegiance and devotion to Jesus and his lordship, but they hate us because we are not of this world. We are not of this world. We are, as the Apostle Peter says, aliens. We are aliens. When I was a youth pastor, I I preached a message This is not in the notes. It just popped into my mind. I preached a message that I entitled, Aliens Wearing Izod Shirts. I don't know where it came from. I used to love the Izod shirts, right? You remember those? In the 80s. And I thought, here we are with a a biblical response to living in an ungodly system. We are aliens. We we are, our, our home is in heaven. Our home is not in this ungodly cosmos. And we, we wear things like Izod shirts or we wear Nike shirts and we wear things that other people wear, but we are not of this world. And Jesus says, because you're not of this world, the world hates you. See, followers of Jesus repudiate, or I should say we should repudiate, the values and the philosophy of this world. Why? Because our citizenship is in, help me, Heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so followers of Jesus then embrace a biblical worldview. We believe that God created the cosmos. That God created all things. That because he created all things, he is sovereign and Lord over all things. 
We believe that man is created by God and is both significant and sinful. We believe that that an eternal perspective is important. We recognize that God is working all things for the counsel of His will and has an all-wise plan for the good of His people and the glory of His name. As R.C. Sproul has said many times over the last 40 years, that there is not one maverick molecule anywhere in the universe or any universe. There is not one maverick molecule. We believe that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for sinners, reconciling them to a holy God and redeeming them from all their sins and and saving them from 10,000 degrees of white-hot wrath. You see, followers of Jesus have eyes for the kingdom of God, do we not? We have eyes on, on on a higher reality. Our eyes are set on the future. Our eyes are not set on the here and now. Followers of Jesus have a, a home in heaven, which is to say that, once again, we have an eternal perspective. And I might sum all this up by saying that followers of Jesus march to the beat of a different drummer, do we not? We follow a different set of values. We follow a Savior who is supremely beautiful. We follow a Savior who is Lord over all things, which includes us. So I want to apply this first very important point by saying this. Don't, don't be surprised like I am when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Jesus said in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I can't tell you the number of times when I was a, a, a boy growing up when I would lose friends because of my stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when I was about 12 years old, some friends of mine started a club and we had a fort. And it's the coolest thing to have a fort, right? And uh, one day I had a couple of my friends come into our fort and a couple of pornographic magazines. And I said, whoa, whoa, stop. Hold on. You ever bring those in here again, you're out of the club. Well, guess what happened? I was out of the club. I was excluded for a bold stand. And we will see that in the world, will we not? That when we make bold stands for the Lord Jesus Christ and his supremacy, we will be hated. Jesus said in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we remember how the world views us. But there's a second response. We are called now to remain faithful to Christ in this world. And as we continue to walk through this passage, I want you to look at verse 15, where we will find two requests. You might be so bold to call these prayer requests that the Lord Jesus Christ asks of the Father. The first request is stated as follows. Jesus says, I do not ask you that you take them out of the world. And if you can remember back to the second slide, we had two options. Both options were unbiblical. The asceticism option and the absorption option. Jesus' prayer to the Father might sound stunning to you. It might sound counterintuitive to you, but he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In one swoop, Jesus says asceticism, monasticism, being a monk or hermit, that is not the biblical path. 
My prayer is that you not take them out of the world. He does not ask that that Christ's followers be excluded from culture. He does not ask that they be excluded from the city. He does not ask that they stop interacting with the world. He does not ask that they become monks or hermits or live an ascetic lifestyle. Followers of Christ in the world. We refuse to participate in the evil ideology of the world. 1 John 2.15, the Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Think for a moment now, just a brief rabbit trail. If anyone loves the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So think of the absorption side. If you're here this morning fully absorbing the world and saying yes to everything the world has to offer, John's response is anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, that's absorption with the world, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you see, these these polar opposite options, neither of these options are biblical options. So followers of Christ live in the world and make it their aim to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not ask that you take them from the world, Jesus says, but there's something else that he asks. He says, but I ask you that you would keep them from the evil one. So now you know the, the locale, the location Where are we as Christians to reside? We are to reside smack dab in the middle in the world. Because Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Who is the evil one? The evil one is, as the Greek says, the paneros. The paneros is the devil. The father of lies, Beelzebub, Satan, the arch enemy of our souls, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. Jesus says, keep them from the evil one. Jesus prayed for Martin Luther, keep Luther from the evil one as he battled with Satan in the Wartburg Castle. Jesus prayed for John Calvin, who was persecuted Almost his whole adult life. Keep him from the evil one. He prayed for Jonathan Edwards. Who also experienced vicious persecution. Was even thrown out by his own congregation. He was fired. Keep them from the evil one. And Jesus prays for you and I. Keep Christ's fellowship. Keep the members of Christ's fellowship. From the evil one. That word keep. Means to guard. Or to watch over. And I hope you you see those words as reassuring. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, prays to the Father, keep my followers from the evil one. Watch over them. Guard them. Why? Because Satan's aim is to overthrow your faith. Satan's aim is to get you off the beaten track. Satan's aim is to, to derail the locomotive of your life. His objective is to discourage us and to prevent us from persevering. Am I the only one who has ever felt like just giving up? 
just for fun. Would you raise your hand if you ever just felt like throwing in the towel? Lots of you. Satan's aim, Satan's objective is that you would just throw in the towel and say, I'm sick of it all. I'm going to the absorption side. I'm just going to taste and see that the world is good. Eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to do like King Solomon did. And I'm going I'm to work and I'm going to play and I'm going to enjoy myself and I'm going to absorb myself and all that the world has to offer. And if that's the direction you go, we've already seen that the love of the Father is not in you. Jesus prays that as his people engage with the world, notice and don't let that fall by the wayside, as his people engage with the world and rub shoulders with the world and build relational bridges with the world and participate with everything from the meaningful to the mundane, that God would keep them, that God would keep you and me from the evil one. What do faithful followers of Christ in the world look like? If we have biblically made the case that asceticism is not a viable option, if we have made the case that absorption is not a viable option, then what does standing right here, what does it look like? What does it look like? First, I want you to see that the Bible says that we are to be salt and light. What is salt? Salt is a purifier. Salt is a preservative. There's at least two messages in that one statement. That we are a preserver, that we are a purifier, and that we are also light. Sometimes as we live in the world, we'll say, that's wrong. A couple of times my son, I'm so proud of him, he will, he will say to friends or even a teacher, no, 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 hold the boat, that's wrong. And I would say, good for you. Now we do it with a, a humble heart. We do it with a contrite spirit, but when we see evil perpetuated in our culture, when we see injustice taking place in our culture, when we see abortion on demand in our culture, we stand up and say, that is wrong. We are salt and light. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Number two, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors. And for some reason, I think this word is losing its forcefulness. The reason I think that is because I went to a, a, a Bible college, now Multnomah University, who used to have the, the mascot as an ambassador. We would say at basketball games, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're ambassadors for Christ. I love that. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, making uh, Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. My alma mater changed the mascot, and that's their business. But I think that phrase, mask, or that, that phrase ambassador is slowly going by the wayside. But what does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents. An ambassador rightly represents someone. In this case, we represent the living God. Number three, 
We are sojourners and exiles. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's over here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. By the way, don't miss it. Over here, I urge you to steer clear of passions that wage against your flesh. We all know stories of those who move to the ascetic side. They say no to sex, and they say no to the world, and they say no to drugs, and they say no to materialism. But what happens? They've taken their evil heart with them, and they end up embracing all of those pleasures in some cases. And so the imperative applies to them as well. Number four, use your imagination on this one to conclude. We remember the smell test. We remember the smell test. And this is the smell test. Most of you know by now because of advertising or general knowledge that when you smell rotten eggs, you have a gas leak. We've been kind of ingrained to to recognize that when you smell rotten eggs, you have a gas leak in your house or place of business. As Christians, we need to recognize something. When we smell rotten eggs, that's the smell of the world. Whether it's an entertainer, or whether it's an athlete, or whether it's a politician, or whether it's a book, or whether it's a movie, we need to engage in what I'm calling the smell test every day. Instead of embracing the world, instead of absorbing the world, we say, I think we have a gas leak. I think we have a worldview problem here, and I think it's high time for me as a Christ follower to draw the line in the sand and say, enough is enough. Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And even when we smell a worldview that opposes God and the kingdom of God, we are still called to remain in the world, to make a difference to the glory of God. So that is to say, when you smell something that doesn't sound like the biblical worldview, we don't run away. What do we do? We confront it. We deal with it. We confront. We're salt. We're light in this wicked generation. And so what should be our mindset as followers of Jesus in this ungodly age? We resist the urge to to flee from the world and become evangelical hermits. Asceticism, monasticism, being a monk or hermit is simply not not an option for a follower of Jesus. But likewise, we resist the urge to follow the ways of the world. We resist the option of absorption. And likewise, absorption is not an option for a follower of Jesus. Jesus Christ, in a few short sentences, teaches the proper mindset for every follower of his. And that is this. Christians remember how the world views us, and we remain faithful to Christ In the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We constantly live as followers of Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. We are constantly battling the extremes of asceticism and the extremes of absorption. These extremes of of legalism and license are real. And they demand that we think and act with biblical wisdom, that we listen carefully to the prayer of Jesus to his Father. May we remember how the world views us 
And may we remain faithful followers of Christ in this world. And may the world, as they gaze upon our lives and upon our church family, may they see a difference in our response. And may they be drawn to faith in Christ as we live obediently before the Savior. I want to invite you to come back next week. My, my tradition is I usually work a couple of weeks ahead. And I really wanted to preach the message that I'll preach next week today. I am ex- It's not that I was not excited about today. I was very excited about today, but I'm also excited about next week and the next week and the next week. We will learn next week what it means to be on mission. What does it mean to be on mission? Will you pray with me? Father, help us to have the proper perspective as we live in an age that appears to be getting more evil by the day. God, help us to to live in the sweet spot, to remember how the world views us, to remember that they hate the word of God and they hate the people of God. Help us to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. Help us to be in the world, but not of the world. I pray that you'd give us courage to confront error. I pray that you'd give us uh, the ability to admonish when that needs to take place, that you'd help us to be humble, that you'd help us to be contrite, that you'd help us to tremble at your word, and that the watching world would see a difference in the people of God here in this little area that you've placed us. Now, God, as we uh, sing uh, to close the service, may you be honored. May our, our hearts rejoice. May we be thankful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.